Well, we're continuing on, aren't we, in the book of Acts. Um, That's what you've been studying. So keep your... Suzanne, thanks so much for reading. And yes, it was a long reading, wasn't it? But it's good to read God's word, isn't it? Because so often we can talk about God's word. Um, And just a little plug, Heather and I are both involved in KYB. Um, Heather's been very involved in Christian women communicating internationally. Um, But taking God's word primarily um, as a ministry to women, but the KYB material is Bible study material. And uh, I run a Bible study for men using the KYB material. And what's really interesting is being able to just read God's word, answer some questions about it, and then come together and discuss those answers. And it's interesting, isn't it? I can remember that there's one story Heather said that... um, there was one lady involved in a group and they're going through answering the questions and she would give some answers and they said, where'd you get that from? Well, it's really hard, she said, trying to get the answers when you haven't got a Bible. And so just the encouragement it is, isn't it, to be able to read God's word. So keep the book open, your Bible open at Acts 15 Because this here is a really significant chapter. All of God's word is significant and important. But this one is really significant. And um, if we just um, go back to this one here, being a forester, just loved being up in the, the mountains and so in the Great Dividing Range, and I'm sure you folk have had opportunity to go up and stand up on... Mount Feathertop or Mount Hotham or, you know, up to stand and see, here we are on the Great Divide. And if you've ever stood up there, you know, when the rain falls, depending on which side of the divide the rain falls determines where it ends up. If it falls to the north, it ends up in the Murray River and then down into the sea. If it falls to the south, it ends up in Bass Strait, doesn't it? And that phenomenon, we call that a watershed. And that gives rise to the term that we all use in common parlance, a watershed moment, you know, a significant event that might happen. And I'm sure we've all experienced a watershed moment. Just think for a moment. Has there been some points in your life personally where you've made a decision and it set your course on a trajectory or your life on a path that um, has determined where you are today because of those significant decisions that you've made. Think about Johnny Erickson Tata for a moment. When she dived into that pool or into the lake and broke her neck. Or for Billy Graham, getting down on his knees as a young man by a tree stump when you read his autobiography and praying to God and then accepting that God's word was in its entirety God's written word that he could trust and rely on to preach from. Or about my grandma, as I shared, choosing to offer hospitality to Mr Toby, who then led her to the Lord. Or for Martin Luther, you know, that realisation that salvation is by grace alone and it led to the Reformation. But long before Martin Luther, this same watershed moment, this affirmation that salvation through the Lord Jesus is by grace through faith occurred here at the Jerusalem Council 
in Acts chapter 15. This is a really significant and critical event in the life of the early church. This was a watershed moment. This was a point that the whole understanding of the church could have gone one way or the other. You know, would it be that salvation was grace through faith or would it be that it was salvation was faith plus works? So if we think about that, let's just think about this chapter in three ways. The first is there was a dispute, verses 1 to 5. And then in verses 6 to 18, we have the discussion and the defence of actually salvation by grace through faith. And then we have the decision. So let's just look at this chapter or these 29 verses in these three ways. So this watershed event, when did it occur? It occurred 20 years after Pentecost. So the church had been going for a bit. Okay, so it had been established about 20 years and it happened at a Jerusalem conference. I'm sure we all like conferences and uh, talking with our daughter Frances, we saw her last night, she was just um, talking about the fact she'd gone to her first conference as a lawyer um, during the week and just thrived on it in terms of the discussion and the debate about various issues. And here, this Jerusalem conference was really significant in determining the outcome of the discussion that occurred. So it all started, didn't it, when there were some Jewish teachers, it says, legalistic Jewish teachers came to Antioch and taught that the Gentiles had to be circumcised. They had to obey the law of Moses to be saved. So, of course, it says that it brought them into sharp dispute and debate with Paul and Barnabas. But let's just think about this. It's not surprising, is it, that this actually happened because there were so many people in the Jerusalem church that had been converted Jews and they had been real advocates of the law of Moses. That's what they had. So they're saved from that environment. But they were ignorant of the relationship between law and grace. They'd been highly trained to understand the law and to put it into practice. And we're even told in Acts 6 and verse 7 that there were many, many priests in the Jerusalem church. So that was their whole life, that they had understood the law and they were implementing the sacrificial system. So we're not surprised, are we, when it's a bit hard to let go of some of the old things that they've actually been had built into their lives so strongly but it's a time of transition and at the times of transition it's always difficult, isn't it, as we go through the change. But let's just think for a moment. They came into sharp dispute with Paul and Barnabas so they, they sort of drew a line in the sand. They said, no, 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 we've got to do something here. Why? What was so dangerous about this teaching? And I suppose if we think about it, what they were doing first and foremost was they were attempting to sew the veil of the curtain. So the curtain had been rent, we know about that. Hebrews 10 tells us that, that there was a new way opened um, to God 
through the Lord Jesus, tearing the curtain as it were. God tore it, as we understand it was rent from top to bottom. But the Jews, or this legalistic teaching, was trying to stitch it back up again, put the barrier back in place that the law actually had required in terms of being able to worship and approach God. And they were also trying to rebuild the wall that had been broken down between the Jews and the Gentiles that we're told about in Ephesians 2 and verse 14 that says that when Jesus died on the cross, he broke down the dividing barrier, the wall, between the Jews and the Gentiles. So these legalistic Jews are trying to rebuild the wall. Um, And as we talked about in the reading, they were actually trying to put a Jewish yoke onto Gentile shoulders by saying, hang on, you can trust in Jesus, but you've also got to be circumcised and you've also got to obey the law and keep all the law and essentially the sacrifices um, that was happening. So no, Paul and Barnabas said, we've got to make a stand here. So why was it? Two things. One was, is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross sufficient for our salvation? Now, I trust and pray we would all be able to give a really good answer to that. You know, when we think about it, Acts 16.31, I think you jumped ahead a chapter because I was, no, this, you did 16 last week perhaps. Um, and so the Philippian jailer, what did Paul say to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He didn't say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and get circumcised and keep the law and you'll be saved. Or what about Romans 10 and 9? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Or what about that one that we all learnt in Sunday school? And like Romans 3.23 that Pat reminded us that the youth group could could quote, I'm sure Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we'd all be able to quote, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, and Paul wrote the whole letter to the Galatians to make it clear that salvation is holy by God's grace through faith plus nothing. Look at that verse that I've got on the screen there. This is from Galatians 3.21. Before faith came... We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Paul making it really clear the the difference between faith and law in terms of coming to salvation And secondly, the other thing that was at stake was the missionary program. Paul and Barnabas had been out and here they were starting churches all around the country. If the legalists were correct and Barnabas and Paul had been all wrong in their ministry, then they should have been actually teaching apart from the gospel. They should have been telling the the Gentiles how to live as good Jews, so essentially changing their culture. No wonder 
they debated with these false teachers. You know, and if we think about this for ourselves, you know, what about us? You know, it's possible, isn't it, to get inadvertently caught up adding things to the gospel. Now, I don't want to at all um, challenge our missionary, early missionaries in many cases, but sometimes when we talk about coming to faith Early on, there was an expectation that culturally that they would change their clothing and their food and those sorts of things, that to become a follower of Jesus, you actually had to all of a sudden become westernised in some things very early on. And we've got to be careful that we don't even do that today, that when someone becomes a believer, we expect them to change the way they dress. Um, Now, sure, sometimes things can be inappropriate, but in many cases, it's just a choice of what colour clothes you wear and what type of clothes that you wear or what type of hairstyle or what colour your hair is. But sometimes, inadvertently, we can try and make the gospel mean that you've got to culturally change some of those things that aren't really necessary. But if we push it a bit harder, we might actually include that, yes, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but then you've got to be baptised by water before you're actually saved. Or you've got to have communion regularly before you're actually saved. Or you've got to attend church regularly. And if you don't, well, then you're not saved. Or maybe you have to use a particular version of the Bible. Or you have to speak in tongues. Things like that. I suppose the question for us is, are there, are there issues for us today, personally, or even corporately as a church, that we're grappling with, that we think, oh no, 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 we've got divided opinions on this, um, and how do we go about addressing that? And what are the sorts of consequences that if we make a decision this way, where will it take us? We need to stop and think, and this chapter's for us if we're in that situation of needing to make some decisions about how we work through these issues together. Let's look at how they did here in this Jerusalem Council. So we have the discussion and the defence in verses 6 to 18. What was to be done? Okay, here we've got this question that, no, 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 If the Gentiles are going to be saved, they've got to be circumcised, they've got to keep the law. How do we address this? Well, it's interesting. We're not told here, but in Galatians 2 and verse 2, Paul says that God gave him a revelation instructing him to take this matter to the Jerusalem church leaders. So first and foremost, the reason why Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem to resolve this issue was because God had told him. God had revealed to him in Galatians 2 and 2 that he was to go to the Jerusalem leaders, to the, to the church in Jerusalem. And we're told in this passage um, that the, the church at Antioch agreed in verse 2. And so Barnabas and Paul, they headed up to Jerusalem and they were welcomed by the church. They reported all that God had been doing through them. And it's interesting that they didn't raise it even though they'd gone, we're told in this chapter that immediately the Jewish believers in verse 5, they said, 
the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So what did they do? I don't know how long the Jerusalem Council went for. Did it, was it a three-day event? Was it a week? Um, it says that they had a very, very long time of discussion. It says the apostles, the elders, and it also says the whole church met to discuss this question at length. But the interesting thing is, out of this discussion, then four key leaders got up and presented the case for salvation by grace through faith alone. We've got Peter, stands up and says his bit. We've got Paul and Barnabas, they stand up and say their bit. And then we've got James, stands up and says his bit. So let's look at these three, um, I suppose, defences of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. So what do we have in verse 6 to 11? We've got Peter, and he reviewed what had happened previously. Okay, so he looks back, and it's interesting, he goes back to chapter 10. So you can tell me what's in chapter 10, can't you? You've just studied it a few weeks ago. What's in chapter 10? What was the significant event of chapter 10. Anyone remember? He was a guy, he was praying, he was a Roman. Yeah, Cornelius. So isn't that interesting? That's what Peter's referring to here. So he says, God made a choice that the Gentiles hear the gospel through Peter. Even though Paul was the gospel to the, was the, was the um, apostle to the Gentiles, Peter was the one who was the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and that was to Cornelius. So Peter reminds them about that choice, okay? Um, And then it's interesting, it's all about God and what God has done. If you read through what Peter says what happened, he says that, you know, God made a choice. God knows the heart. You know, God made no distinction. God gave them the Holy Spirit, Um, And so it's all about God and what he does in converting and bringing people to faith. And so, secondly, God, who knows the heart, showed he accepted Cornelius, he accepted the Gentiles through giving them the Holy Spirit the same as us. And that's a reality for every believer, isn't it? If we don't have the Spirit of God, we do not belong to Christ, Romans 8 and 9 says. And this is where it's important, isn't it, for us to understand the Bible. And we can have a lot of false teaching nowadays that will say, you ask Jesus into your heart, you become saved, but then you've got to have a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible clearly teaches that if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to him. Again, important to know that. And so the Gentiles here, Peter says, well, God gave them the Holy Spirit, just as he gave us Jews who became saved at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. So therefore, they don't need to obey the law, is his um, inference. Um, And then it says, God made no distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews because he purified their hearts by faith. So since the cross, there's been no difference between Jew and Gentile. Romans 3 and verse 9, it says, Jews and Gentiles are alike 
are all under sin. Well, what about for salvation? If you read Romans 10 and verse 9 to 13, you know, and it says there quite clearly in verse 12, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, and then we have the last um, point that um, Peter makes really is that he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. That's Paul talking to the Galatians. And then Peter says, well, the ultimate is we as Jews couldn't keep the law, neither could our ancestors keep the law, so how can we actually think that that's going to save, it couldn't save us, um, how's it going to save the Gentiles by us making them try and obey the law just to show that they can't do it either? Um, so his summary statement is, no, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved just as they are. You know, this is probably a memory verse that I think we could remember I don't ever remember learning it as a memory verse, but it seems to me that this is as strong a statement as um, Ephesians 2 verse 8, that this is absolutely significant in the early church that set the church on a direction that meant that they believed the gospel to be the gospel um, as we know and understand it and as the way the scripture teaches it. So... This is a good memory verse, I think. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved just as others. And then what happened? So that was Peter. And Peter got to that point, and that's really, I suppose, the real statement of the outcome of the Jerusalem Council doctrinally. And then we have Paul and Barnabas. Well, they got up, but we only have one verse about that. Um, what does it say? It says they just got up um, and they talked about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. But again, you've been studying that. So Luke only gives one verse to this because the last two, three chapters were all about what God had been doing um, amongst the Gentiles from verse you know, chapter 13 and 14 particularly as they'd gone out establishing the church. And then we've got James agrees with them. And so he agrees and reinforces what Peter, Paul and Barnabas had said. Um, James is an apostle, he's the brother of the Lord and he's a leader in the church. And uh, what's interesting is that he picks up another point and talks about the Gentiles being the people of God. Now this is really significant. We just sort of read over that. But the Jews had been taught that they were God's people. The whole of the Old Testament talks about that. God called the Jews out of Egypt to be his own special people, we read in Exodus 6 and verse 7. You know, and right the way through, I will be your God, you will be my people, says God to the, to the Jews um, and to the Jewish nation. But here... This is an incredibly significant point that um, James makes. He said, no, Gentiles believing in Jesus are now part of the people of God. And he actually quotes Amos um, to actually prove his point. 
Gentiles, it says, who bear the name of the Lord are now part of the people of God. So what's James's conclusion? He says, let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, he identifies four practical things that Gentile believers should do. What about us in regard to this? How do we approach these significant decisions or events that put our life on a trajectory that set us on a path? First and foremost, we need to listen to each other. That's what happened at this Jerusalem Council. It says that they didn't just happen in an hour. It was a long, lengthy discussion. And, you know, in some of the issues that we grapple with, we really need to take the time to listen and discuss an issue thoroughly. And from what we've just heard, we need to consider at least these three aspects. Firstly, like Peter, we need to reflect on what God has done in the past. How has God acted in previous times, in similar situations, with other groups of people? And we need to take the time to research that and to understand that so that that can inform our decision. I don't know about you, but particularly when I was younger, perhaps I really didn't want to listen to others who tried to point out some of the ways in which God had been working in other people's lives and other things. I thought I knew it. Um, No, 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 I've got my opinion and I'm here to actually be part of this debate to give my opinion into the situation as opposed to saying, oh, no, I need to listen to Lee's view. Let me try and understand where he's coming from before I try and put my point of view. I'm one of those that can often be in a conversation and while you're talking, I'm thinking of the answer that I'm going to give. Do you ever get in that sort of situation? And I've had to learn and need to continue to learn to just stop and pause and and really try and understand the other person's aspect. But then secondly, like Paul and Barnabas, we need to reflect on personal experience of God's work in people's lives, just what God is doing in the people's lives around me and to be just overwhelmed by God's amazing grace with the change that he makes in people's lives when they give their hearts to him. We call that giving a testimony, don't we? Telling personal stories of God at work. You know, and it's one of the things that I think we could do a lot more of, um, of just sharing what God has been doing in our lives. You might have heard of the series Faith Runs Deep. Anyone heard of the series Faith Runs Deep? Yeah, by Carl Fass out of Sydney, um, Olive Tree Ministries. Encourage you to Google it and look it up. But during COVID, he and his wife travelled all around Australia in an iconic Holden V8 ute, recording the stories of people from all walks of life coming to faith in Jesus, wanting to show that God has been at work right through Australia's history um, in terms of bringing people to faith in him. Um, Yeah, I really commend it to you because one of the most powerful demonstrations of the gospel is the reality of a changed life. Has our lives really changed? Are our lives genuinely a testimony to those around about us that when people look at us, they want to ask the question, why are you so different? 
Why don't you act or react the same way that I do? Because God takes our lives and changes them for his glory and for revealing what he can do in a life to others around it. And thirdly, like James, as we approach these decisions, what does God's word say? We need to pause, don't we, when we're making difficult and challenging decisions and say, well, what does God's word have to say? So often we say, oh, no, God's word hasn't got anything to say. It was written so long ago. When it will always have something to say to every situation that we find ourselves in. The importance of studying God's word and knowing it, as I talked about at the start. The importance of personal Bible study. Um, I'm sure you've experienced this when you've come across a difficult decision and you say, I haven't got time to read God's word, but God, by his grace and through his Holy Spirit, if we've been studying God's word, a portion of scripture will come to mind to help us, to guide us, to point us in the right direction. Your word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet or other way around. Um, And I'm always challenged by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. He gives the example of two blokes, remember? And whoever puts my word, hears my word and puts it into practice is like the bloke that built his house on the solid rock. The importance of listening and understanding God's word and putting it into practice. So that brings us to our final point, which is the decision. What was the decision that they made at this Jerusalem council? It says that the leaders and the whole church, in verse 22, made this decision. So it wasn't just someone at the top saying, yep, this is how it's going to be. It says that they've come to an understanding together, directed by the Holy Spirit, in verse 28, James says quite clearly, made the decision. And what was the decision? It had two parts. Firstly, it was a doctrinal decision about salvation. And secondly, it was a practical decision about how to live the Christian life. So we've looked at the doctrinal decision, haven't we? You know, the church concluded that Jews and Gentiles are all sinners before God and can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. There's one need, man's sin, and one gospel to meet that need. Acts 4 and verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And God is calling out a people for his name from all nations. 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Okay, so a decision's been made. That's it. We feel great. Okay, yeah, we're on that side. But no, we've all agreed that that's our doctrine. That's what we believe. But if that's all it is, then it's not enough, is it? Because James himself, later when he writes his book, tells us that doctrine must lead to duty. That if it doesn't change our behaviour in the way we relate to one another, faith without works is dead. So there's no works for salvation, but there's all works as evidence 
of that salvation. And we've got to put it into practice in our everyday life. You know, church problems, we have challenges. Maybe you don't have challenges down here, but churches have challenges and different views. The problem's not solved, is it, by passing a resolution at the meeting and saying, okay, yep, that's what we agree. Okay? All settled, signed. No, it's only solved by ultimately putting into practice what we agree on so that it makes a difference in how we relate to one another. So James then advised the church to write to the Gentile believers to share the decisions of the conference. Sometimes it's good to write letters. Maybe you want to communicate something to someone and you feel that if you front them face to face, they won't listen. But if you write it down in a letter graciously provide it to them. They've got an opportunity to read it, to reflect on it and then to act on it or to come back and discuss it. The other thing that I find too that if I have to write something on a paper rather than just talking to someone I think much more carefully about what I want to say and why I want to say it. So maybe that's some advice. If you're dealing with a difficult decision and working with someone on that, maybe you might want to consider communicating that way as part of it. But anyhow, he wrote this letter or asked the church to write the letter and the letter asked for obedience to two commands and a willingness to agree to two personal concessions. So this was the crux of it. The two commands, the believers were to avoid idolatry and immorality sins that were especially prevalent among the Gentiles. And there were two concessions to abstain from eating blood and meat from animals that had been strangled. If we think about it, you know, there's no debate around the two commands to, you know, they don't create any problems. Idolatry, and expressed here about not eating food offered to idols, but the whole issue at heart there was idolatry. And, and sexual immorality, well, both of them are part of the Ten Commandments, aren't they? You know, there's not, there's not a challenge about that being wrong. They've always been wrong in God's sight for both Jews and Gentiles. But what about the two concessions um, about the food? I mean, if we think about it, you know, the early church did a lot of eating together, a lot of practising hospitality. If the Gentile believers ate food that the Jewish believers considered unclean, it would cause a division in the church. And it's amazing and it's just so good to see in this letter is expressed the loving unity of people who had been debating with each other and defending opposing views because it tells us quite clearly that it was the elders and the whole church that came to this decision. Okay, so they've come to agree um, that this is the way forward. The legalistic Jews willingly gave up insisting that the Gentiles had to be circumcised to be saved And the Gentiles willingly accepted a change to their eating habits, a loving compromise that didn't affect the truth of the gospel. So let's think about this. What did the decision actually achieve in a practical way? Well, three things stand out to me. It strengthened the unity of the church and kept it from splitting. Otherwise, it would have all of a sudden gone to an extreme law group and an extreme grace group. But... This wasn't about compromising on doctrine. 
rather it's learning to give and take in the practical arrangements of life so that people can live and work in love and harmony together. Secondly, it made it possible for the church to present a united witness to unbelieving Jews. If the Gentile believers had have abused their freedom in Christ and eaten meat containing blood, that would offend both saved Jews and their unsaved friends whom they were trying to win to Christ. And Paul spoke a lot about this in Romans chapter 14, describing this as a matter of not being a stumbling block to the weak or the lost. And thirdly, the decision brought blessing as the letter was shared with various Gentile congregations. It tells us that Paul and Barnabas, along with Judas and Silas, took the good news to Antioch. And verse 30 and 31 says, The church rejoiced and was encouraged because they didn't have to carry the yoke of the law. And on his second missionary journey, Paul shared the letter with the churches he'd found, founded on his first missionary journey, and it says in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 16, the result was the church's faith was strengthened and their numbers were increased. So just really encouraging. But what about us? You know, often there's difficulties and challenge amongst us. We need to see them as opportunities for growth more so than for division between us. And if we approach these issues with an attitude of listening and understanding each other and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak and work, we'll get a different outcome. You know, if we think about it, often the things that we really debate about, they're not caused by doctrinal differences. They're just caused by different viewpoints on various matters, which way the church should face what sort of church, um, seats we should have. You know, at what time should we meet together? You know, should we have wine or grape juice in the, you know, in the cup? You know, there's so many things that we hear of that we have very strong views about and often aren't prepared to give up. But we need to learn the art of loving compromise on things that don't really matter. You know, we know that in relationships, Sometimes compromise is wrong, but there's also many, many times when compromise is right. You know, think about it. The person who's always right and who always insists on having his or her own way, they're really difficult to live with, aren't they? You know, and sometimes I'm sure all of us can fall into that stubbornness that um, we're not prepared to consider the other person's viewpoint. This is teaching us and showing us that we need to be able to discern between what's doctrinal and what is just practice and preference and be able to give ground. And here we learn that the way in which we deal with our differences will affect our united witness to those that need Jesus. People are watching. Neighbours are watching the way in which you know, your family, husbands and wives deal with decisions um, and they're observing and seeing. And here we're told it's an opportunity that if we do this in a way that brings glory to God, then they will be encouraged and built up in their faith or be caused to come to him. 
What did Jesus pray for us in John 17 and verse 20? He prayed that we, his people, might be united. Why? So that the world might believe on him too. So people are looking at us to see whether we're unified. So let's just think about these watershed moments that when we're making decisions that really set us on a particular path or on a trajectory, either personally or corporately, we need God to give us wisdom so that the gospel's proclaimed and that unity is maintained so that he'll be glorified. Let me pray one prayer, which is a sentence from Paul in Romans chapter 15. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.